On today's episode, Ashley shares the chilling mystery of George Smith, the newlywed who disappeared on his honeymoon cruise. Welcome to Crime Bar. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Good to see you. It's good to see you. I know. I haven't seen you in like 24 hours, and basically. Full 24 hours, you like basically weren't here. It's pretty wild. It's, Hope you were okay. I was okay. I was a little sad. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't say that. Yeah, I was so, I did okay. I held back tears I, yeah, from start to finish. I held it together, but. Oh, that sucks. It must mean a lot to you. <laughs> you mean a ton to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm a, this is our finale. Oh, good for us. Yeah, good for us. We yeah. got a well, we're going to be doing some bonus stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, we're doing bonus stuff. But. Yeah, but finale of our season, what are we on? Four? Four. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so today I'm doing the story of George Smith and Jennifer Hagel. Okay. Do you know that? There, nope. it's like a, okay, cool. You told me cruises are involved. It's That's cruise, all I know. It's a cruise uh, crime. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma. It's, no. it's traumatic. It's bad. Okay, so all my sources are listed on the website. Um, but the victim's family has a Facebook page where they have continually organized as many documents and articles and news segments that they can on the story. So I listed that link because it's like the most comprehensive place to find literally anything on the case, including a bunch of their own private emails and oh, wow. um, correspondence with authorities and stuff like that. So it's very, very, very comprehensive. Yeah. Okay. So George Smith and his new bride, Jennifer Hagel started their honeymoon when they boarded Royal Caribbean's Brilliance of the Seas cruise liner in Barcelona, Spain on June 29th, 2005. Sounds heavenly. Yeah. This was a two-week Mediterranean cruise that would stop in like a bunch of different ports, but um, mostly Greece, Turkey, and Italy. So George and Jennifer had both grown up in Connecticut. They had started dating in 2002. And then in February of 2004, while they were vacationing in Aruba, George proposed to Jen with this like gorgeous engagement ring. George was very sweet and romantic and he always put a lot of thought and effort into gifts and doing gestures for others. So he had spent months saving the money for a ring he thought she deserved. He asked her dad for his blessing and then he thought through like every detail to make this proposal as romantic and special as possible for her. Sounds like most guys that we know. (laughs) (laughs) Sarcasm. Sarcasm. (laughs) And then later, he had taken it upon himself to coordinate like all the details of this very beautiful and romantic honeymoon for them. Amazing. So a little bit of background on who they are. George Smith IV was born on October 3rd, 1978. So he's a Libra. And then Jennifer Hagel was born on November 18th, 1979. So she's a Scorpio. Okay. And I have to say, after heavily researching this, that checks out for both of them. They're compatible? He, or just their personality types? I just mean he's very Libra and she's very Scorpio. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I have no Say idea no if more. they were compatible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what were they like? <laughs> okay, so they're 25 and 26 when they get married. Youngins. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm older than that, so I can say that. 
and they were like such a gorgeous couple. He was very tall, dark and handsome. She was this gorgeous petite blonde and they looked very much the part of like a white upper class, like preppy East Coast mm-hmm. couple. And I hate putting any emphasis on that because obviously society at large does not have any interest in a story that doesn't Talk about hot center people. around hot white yeah. victims. But um, I'm just making it clear that I'm not focusing on that for superficial reasons, but more so to paint the picture so you know who we're dealing with and why they might be targeted for certain things. Yeah. So George was in the process of working for the family business. His dad had a pretty successful, like, high-end liquor store in Greenwich that George was getting more and more involved in, and he was planning on growing the business by creating, like, an online presence. And Jen was planning on taking a job teaching elementary school once they returned from their honeymoon. Everyone said that Jen was so outgoing and bubbly and lots of fun to be around, and George was just, like, hysterical. Everyone who knew him repeatedly mentions how funny he was. Mm -hmm. He was so loving and loyal with his friends and his family. His whole world revolved around those he cared about. And then his parents described him like in the most endearing tone as a party animal. (laughs) He is a Libra. Yeah, who was so much fun to be around because he loved having fun. And his mom, Maureen, said he just made life special. So it is very Libra. Yes. Their friend said the two of them separately were just very bubbly, bright energies. And then when they got together, they were just so magnetic and you couldn't help but gravitate towards them. And they both loved kids. So they were planning on starting a family like as soon as possible. They got married in a really beautiful garden that overlooked the ocean in Newport, Rhode Island on June 25th, 2005. So four days before boarding their honeymoon cruise in Barcelona. And all of the guests said their wedding was such a happy day for everyone. And the joy was just so infectious. It was just one of those weddings that just, it was so beautiful and so Mm -hmm. full of love. It was just a very special thing to be a part of. So their lives are just perfect is what I'm gathering. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Okay. And (laughs) So they set sail. George and Jennifer are staying on the ninth floor in room 9062. They have one of those cabins that's on the outer side of the ship. So they have a balcony. And I think the whole ship consisted of only like 12 or 13 floors anyway, so they were pretty high up. Okay. So right off the bat, George and Jen make a lot of friends. They become fast friends with another honeymoon couple that they have dinner with almost every night. During one of their stops while they're exploring, they share a cab with a 20-year-old named Josh Askins from California who was on the cruise with his family. Josh had also made friends with some boys his age, kind of like all in the 20 to 21 range, Um who were on the ship with their families. They were Mm -hmm. all from New York area, so they were also American citizens. A California police officer named Cleet Hyman was staying in the room next to the Smiths. He and his wife were in room 9064. He said that on the second night of the cruise, George and Jennifer had what sounded like a pretty loud and rambunctious party from around 11 p.m. to well after 3 a.m. Cleet said he and his wife never formally met George and Jennifer, but they did pass them in the halls enough that they knew it was a young, attractive couple that was staying in that room. And then another couple named Greg and Pat Lawyer were staying in the room on the other side of the Smiths. They were in room 9060. However, they never once met or even saw George and Jennifer, so they didn't know who was in the neighboring room. Okay. So most of the trip for the newlyweds was spent like this. They'd hang by the pool if they were out to sea or if they were docked, the couple would explore the port. Then they'd come back to the ship, freshen up, go to dinner and drinks with that other honeymooning couple. Mm -hmm. And then around 11 p.m., everyone would meet up with 
the younger guys I mentioned and amongst a bunch of other people in that young party crowd. <laughs> it's so funny because I really quick, I read this meme where it was like, there's nothing like the sexual tension between two like teenagers that are similar ages at a resort. Do you oh, remember yeah. that? Like oh, being, totally. being like 17 yeah. and you're in Mexico with your parents so and there's exotic. like another 17 year old, mm-hmm. your whole vacation revolves around them. Anyways. So everyone would continue drinking in the casino and then some would split off and go to bed. Some would continue to the party. Some would continue the party in like someone's cabin or some would continue the party on the top deck where the ship's nightclub was located, which was called the disco. Yeah, so George loved to play craps. So he always liked playing a few games each night after dinner. And apparently just this entire crowd just loved partying. So Mm -hmm. it seemed like it became the routine immediately that everyone partied well after 3 a.m. every night. (laughs) Um, In one of the last emails that George sent to his parents from the ship, he told them he was having the time of his life and not to reach out to him for anything, quote, unless the world is ending or if someone died. So on Monday, July 4th, it's the fifth day of the cruise and they're now docked in Mykonos, Greece. Mm -hmm. Greece was George's favorite place he'd ever been to before, so he was most looking forward to this particular stop on the cruise. Jen said they spent all day exploring as much as they could and they were on cloud nine. They're in love and they're enjoying this beautiful vacation where they've been having so much fun. And I mean, it's like day nine of their marriage. So it's literal honeymoon phase, you know, they kept talking about how they couldn't wait to come back here again. And George even started talking about like, maybe we need to come here regularly, or maybe we need to buy a timeshare here or retire here or something like that. Vacation thoughts. Yeah. And Jen was like, I wonder how our parents would feel about that because it's so far from Connecticut and they're really close to their families. And George was like, I don't know. And honestly, it's like too beautiful for me to even care. <laughs> two craps. Yeah. <laughs> so while they're there, this is so random. While they're there, they saw that actress Tara Reed <laughs> filming, oh, yeah, some, yeah. filming yeah. something. Boob came out. Yeah. And they stopped and asked for a picture with her, which is completely irrelevant to the story. It has nothing to do with it's it. Worth it's worth noting. It's just weird. So I included it. I love her. Jennifer said that while they were exploring, they just kept obsessing over how beautiful it all was and it felt so unreal. And she took so many photos that George even stopped her at one point and was like, okay, I think 200 photos of me is sufficient. <laughs> like, I think uh, we're good. Between you and her love. Yeah. Anyways, they had such a great time that they spent way more time on the on land than they'd intended to. So by the time they got back to the ship, that other couple that they usually dined with had already eaten. So that couple was like, you guys go ahead and eat dinner and let's meet up in the casino around 11 like we usually do. Mm -hmm. So they go to dinner like normal. Jennifer said they got a wonderful meal and kept reiterating how lucky they felt. They're toasting to their future. And then on their way to the casino, George said he wanted to stop by the room to drop off his sport coat. So they do that and then they meet up with everyone in the casino. Security footage in the casino shows George walking through with Josh, that 20-year-old from California, And another camera shows Jennifer walking into the casino by herself. So this is either the last time either of them is caught on security cameras or this is the only image the cruise line was willing to release. And I'm thinking it's the latter because obviously the cruise is covered in cameras. So George is teaching Josh how to play craps. Some people say he was also teaching Jen how to play. And he supposedly won a few times. What he won, I don't know, but he won a few games. Mm Mm-hmm. At some point in the evening, he supposedly starts bragging to various people about the amount of money in his safe up in his room. Some witnesses say the number was $14,000. Some say it was $17,000. And one other person even said $50,000, which seems 
totally Steve. insane to me. Like they, they weren't, they were well off, but they weren't wealthy like that. Just so to that keep seems, 50 grand in the safe. Yeah. That seems a little crazy. And later George's family challenges this. They said he probably had money on him given that they were on vacation and he liked gambling, but he never would have had that kind of money on him. It just, it just didn't make any sense. PSA, never announce how much money you have on your, on your, on your body, on yourself, in your hotel room. In your room. bank account. Yeah. It's nothing. your target on your back. Yeah. So sometime while they're in the casino, George and Josh go to George's room, 9062, where Josh claims that George got some more cash out from his safe. And then they took a few shots of absinthe. Someone had smuggled this bottle onto the ship. And I don't know who it was. We just know that George and some other passengers had been sharing it. So even after prohibition ended, that green poison was still outlawed and didn't become legal in the U.S. again until 2007. Oh, okay. And this is in 2005? Yeah. Yeah. And this, I'm just referring to, I'm referring to the U.S. (laughs) I don't know when it was, if it was ever outlawed, like in elsewhere, elsewhere, because they were in other countries. So that's where they got it. Um, But even then after 2007 in the U.S., it's obviously much more regulated than in the 1800s. And it isn't often made with the ingredient wormwood. And that's the ingredient that gave it the hallucinogenic side effects, psychosis, mm-hmm. comas, deaths, all that stuff in the 1800s that it's known for. Yeah. Back in the 1800s, when it became very popular, a typical bottle was usually 140 proof, whereas today a bottle of absinthe is more like 80 to 100 proof. Do you know what like whiskey is? Well, I literally looked up whiskey as an example and a bunch of it said 80 to 100 proof. And okay. so I don't think that's a good example, but I'd, it really confused me. Yeah. To be I honest, don't get I alcohol. wanted to, I don't get it either, but it's, um, it's just, re- that's really it's just high. real high. It's just real high. <laughs> just that's, take our word for that's it. That's all I know. <laughs> um, okay. So anyways, this group is already drinking normal alcohol pretty heavily. Now they're adding absinthe and a shot of that is two to three times stronger than a standard shot of alcohol. And the boys, the younger boys who were doing shots, they said they remember doing two to three shots of absinthe, which is AKA a lot. Six to nine. It's, yeah, it's on top of normal alcohol yeah. from all night. So it's a lot. Uh, an attorney for Josh later actually says that the amount of drinking that went on that night would quote, put frat parties to shame. <laughs> like it was insane. Wow. So the casino shuts down and the employees are all ushering guests into the elevators to go up to the deck where the the disco is, the nightclub. While they're in the elevator, Josh Josh says that everyone is very intoxicated and he notices that a casino manager that they've become acquainted with during the trip, a guy named Lloyd Botha, is really coming on to Jennifer. He was holding on to her. He had his arms around her and she was sort of hanging on to him too, but more in like a, she was so intoxicated kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And Josh was just like, it was, it did, it looked bad. It was inappropriate given that this is not only an employee doing this with a guest, but also her husband is standing right there in the same elevator. On their honeymoon. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And a little side note, this may or may not matter. It's just worth noting. Multiple people stated that Lloyd was present when George made the remarks about money earlier in the casino. Worth noting. They all pile out into the disco. It's obviously really loud and dark in there. George gets a table for everyone, and then the bottle of absinthe comes back out, so people start doing more shots of that. After a few minutes, Josh and the other three guys that he had been with, plus some other witnesses who weren't even part of the group at all, they say that They see Jennifer and George have some type of a disagreement, like a heated exchange, but it's too loud to hear what's being said. Then Jennifer appears to knee George in the groin. George doubles over in pain as you do. 
and then Jennifer storms out of the club. Multiple people, including Josh, claimed that after seeing Jennifer leave, Lloyd, that casino manager, quickly follows her out. Okay, now this is the point in the story where everyone's recollections go in somewhat different directions. From this point forward, everything I tell you is alleged and based off multiple witness statements. Almost all of them are suspects and not all of them align with one another. So you have to take all of these accounts with a grain of salt. Nothing is certain. There's only like three to four witness accounts that I'll mention that are I, I believe are totally factual. And none of these people were suspects, nor did they have nor did they have any contact or connection to George and Jen. And none of them even knew each other. Okay. So after Jen knees him in the groin and storms out, George tries to sit back down at the table, but he's so drunk he misses his seat and he falls to the ground. So about 15 minutes later, it's roughly 3.30 a.m. and The lights come on and the disco is closing. Josh and the other boys say that they were all very drunk, but George was on another level and he could like barely stand, much less walk by himself. They're currently on the 13th floor and they know George is staying on the ninth floor and all these boys are staying on the third floor. So they all agree to help him to his room since they're passing it anyways. And it takes all four of these young men to get George to his room because he's way bigger than them. He's a literal dead weight and he's way bigger. He's like, I don't know exactly, but based off photos, he kind of looks like Brett's size, like six, four, six, five, yeah. probably 200 pounds, like that kind of thing. He's like a pretty big guy. I was like doing this thing yesterday with Rawls where I was like, be limp and then see if I can, if I had to, if I could <laughs> lift you up. Mm. I could not even no. get him to sit upright. I have real anxiety about that. Brett is so much bigger Same. than me that I I wonder like if there was a fire, if there was something where I needed to- Couldn't do anything. I don't think I could help him physically. Like I was literally having a fire drill with him yeah. yesterday out of anxiety yes. thinking about that for no reason. I've literally <laughs> done that with Brett and I, I can't What's do it. What's wrong with us? <laughs> I did read online though because uh, I read once that uh, female- firefighters mm-hmm. are physically obviously smaller than most men. Yeah. So there's a way to carry almost any weight and there's, it's a you whole have to thing. drag. You have to drag, but in, in this certain way where you have their armpits or I, yeah. I don't really remember it, but there is a way. So okay, I'll show we'll look you. into it. Yeah. So the other boys that Josh is with are the New Yorkers. They were all American citizens also, but because they were of Russian descent, the media, and then even the authorities later and all of their like documents start to refer to them as the Russians. Which I just was like not into. With the guys that were helping out? Yeah, Josh is from California. And then the other three boys, um, they're just from New York. They're, but they were all sit- American citizens also. But because their like parents that. were from Russia and had immigrated to America. Yeah. Like it was very, I didn't like it. Anyways, uh, so the I'm not going to refer to them as that. But the Russians that are referenced, they were Greg and Zach Rosenberg and their friend Rusty Kaufman. So the keypad on the Smith's room shows that George's key was used to open his cabin door at 3.52 a.m. And it was at this precise moment that Cleet Hyman, that vacationing cop in the next room, 9064, is woken up by a commotion. He says he heard kind of rambunctious sounds, almost like a college party doing like a drinking game or something. Mm -hmm. Like it sounded like drunk people cheering. So he's listening to it for like just maybe a minute. 
and then he can hear the voices all pile out into the hallway and the sounds start to fade away. Josh and the other boys claim that when they enter George's room, they realize that Jennifer wasn't there. And George supposedly insisted that they all go back out and look for her. He can't even stand. So the boys agree, like, okay, let's go do a lap and see if we can find her. They say that they all tumble out of their room and they go up to the solarium, which is like the main deck, and do a quick lap. They don't see her and they decide to return to George's room. So the keypad on the cabin door shows that George's key is used again to unlock the door at 4.01 a.m. That means it took nine minutes from the time that they entered the room to all piling out, going to the main deck and doing a whole lap and then tumbling back with a giant drunk man who couldn't walk on his own. It just seems like a little too fast to have done what Nine Josh minutes. and the boys claim that they did. But however, it perfectly coincides with what Cleet Hyman heard. He remembers that after he heard the group walk away after being woken at 352, it was about 10 minutes later that he heard them return. And because he's a cop, his his account of what has happened is so precise. And he was intentionally looking at the clock constantly yeah there's another witness that i bring up in a minute who wasn't as precise about that because they're just normal people they're a normal human <laughs> yeah. with a normal brain yeah so i i just believe a lot of what cleet says according to josh and the other boys jennifer still was not in the room when they returned josh went straight to the bathroom and the other three stayed in the room with george and helped him into bed they said that george was in that like sloppy happy drunk mood where he was like so grateful and thanking them and hugging and kissing them for helping him get to his room like just thank you thank you thank you that Mm -hmm. kind of thing so they're like corralling him trying to take his shoes off and tossing them to the side trying to get him into bed then josh came out of the bathroom he says george was in the bed thanking the others for helping him trying to hug them and kiss them (laughs) and the guys all start kind of migrating towards the door they all walk out together and they go to one of their rooms on the third floor and order room service According to Cleet Hyman, he'd been woken at 3.52, heard the voices just briefly before hearing them walk out to the hall and away. Then he says it was silent for a few minutes before he then heard male voices arguing on George's patio. After maybe two minutes of arguing, they stop. And then that's when he hears that group re-enter and it's rambunctious again. He says that when he heard the male voices return to the cabin, it was just after 4 a.m., it was very brief and muffled, but he sound, he counted maybe three to four male voices talking, and he could hear very clearly the sounds of all the voices moving towards the door as they said, okay, good night, okay, okay, good night, good night, good night. And he said it was like that, like it, if you're ushering someone out of the room or trying to usher yourself to out if someone's trying to keep you there, yeah. that sort of thing. He heard the voices in the hallway, and he goes to his door, opens it, and pokes his head out, and he sees three young men in civilian clothes walking away from him but josh and the boys insist that when they left george's room for good all four of them were together so it is possible that by the time cleet looked out because there was a beat he waited a beat before he decided to look outside the fourth guy may have already turned the corner out of view or given how narrow those hallways are they're really really narrow yeah it's possible the fourth was just like obscured from his view since they all had to like walk Pile, in front of yeah. each other or the boys are lying and the fourth guy was somewhere else. But the boys claim this is the last time that they saw George, that he was in bed when they closed his door, that Jennifer was not there and no one else was in the cabin with him. That was their story from the beginning. And even later on when they find out what Cleet gives or what Cleet says in his statement about the two males arguing on the patio, 
Josh and the boys deny anyone going out there. They insist that Josh went straight to the bathroom. The other guys helped George in the bed, and then they all left. No one was upset or arguing, and no one went on the patio. So if we rewind like a few minutes to 4.01 a.m. when George's key is used to open the door again, that other couple named Greg and Pat Lawyer who were on the other side of George's cabin who had never seen George and Jen, they say they were woken up by loud voices at 4 o'clock. They said it was male voices. They sounded drunk, but very kind and friendly, as though it was just drunk friends helping their other drunk friends. They could make out multiple male voices, and at one point, they distinctly heard a male voice gently say, okay, George, settle down, settle down, George, settle down, okay, okay, Mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. And based off what Josh and the boys had relayed later, that's probably when George was like kissing and hugging them, and they're like, okay, okay, (laughs) let's stop this now. And then based off of what Cleet heard, it would have been seconds later that all of the males leave the room. Yeah. Cleet in his room and Greg and Pat in their room say that after all of their voices went away, they could hear one male voice talking conversationally, although no one was responding. And it sounded as though he was searching the room, opening and closing cabinet doors and doors really loudly. Then it sounded like he started moving the furniture around, almost like picking up chairs and then slamming them down again. Cleet said it sounded almost as if someone was like drunkenly rearranging furniture or even throwing the furniture overboard. (laughs) Like it was just tons of heavy dragging and moving around. All three, Greg, Pat, and Cleet, they all say this went on for like eight to 10 minutes. Then there was total silence for about two minutes. And then at 4.25 a.m., Cleet hears what he says can only be described as a horrific thud. Something so loud, he said it reverberated in his room and on his balcony. Greg and Pat heard this that as well, and Greg, Greg said that he thought it was as if people had picked up the sofa and then just let it drop as hard as possible. Hmm. Cleet falls back to sleep at this point, but Greg and Pat are laying there wondering if they need to call and complain about all the noise that's been happening. Yeah. And then Pat hears knocking at the door and she's like, oh my God, someone's at our door. Go answer it. And Greg is like, no, they're, I think they're knocking at somebody else's door. That's not our door. So they sit and they, they listen for a minute and the knocking stops and then it starts again. Someone is clearly knocking on the door and it's like 4.30 in the morning. So he's- peepholes? No. There's no flipping peepholes no. on these doors? no. It was only very recently that uh, enough people had gone missing. Crimes have been committed on cruise ships that uh, the door locks, like the deadbolts that are in hotel rooms and peepholes, have only recently been added to cruise ships. Insane. So Greg's, you know, he hears the knocking in. So he's like, fine, okay, I'm going to get up. He opens his cabin door, pokes his head out, and he sees two Royal Caribbean staff members knocking on the door to 9062. And Greg says to them, hey, you guys better get in there. I think that room is trashed. And he said that they both turned and looked at him and didn't say anything. They just sort of waved him off like, yeah, yeah, and went back to knocking. So Greg goes back to bed. But then about 10 to 15 minutes later, he hears someone knocking at that door again. And he said he was really surprised because he'd assumed that somebody else had complained about the noise and that that's what they were responding to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he poked out and said, I think that room was trash. You need to get in there. So he was really surprised that 15 minutes later, they're back knocking again. Like it just didn't make it because in that 15 minutes, it had been totally silent. So why would you come back again? So after putting George to bed, Josh and the other three boys insist that they all left together and they went to one of their rooms, 
room 3008 on the third floor. They said that they ordered copious amounts of food. You know, those really drunken nights where you're starving by the end and you just, you pig out on all the food that you can get your hands on. It's like, do I want lasagna or do I want a club sandwich? Yes. Both. Yeah, literally. So um, it was like that. And they had actually ordered so much food that one of them took a picture of all of the food trays. Like mm. his, it, the room was full. Very Instagram influencer. Of that. Yeah. Back in 2005. I know. Um, and, you know, because it's 2005, the photos are all time stamped with the time and the date. Yes. So um, the photo is time stamped at 4.30 a.m. July 5th, 2005. That photo is not public. So I'm basing that off of documents from the investigation that make note of it. Um, the boys all agree that they didn't know exactly what time they got to the room and ordered the food, but they estimated that they were all in there eating for maybe an hour, which I think is true because if they left George's room just after 4 a.m., they take the photo of their food at 4.30 a.m., then it makes total sense that later the keypad logs on their rooms show that three of the guys using their keys entered their rooms at 5.03 a.m., 5.14 a.m., and 5.17 a.m. I have a theory. <laughs> I think it's going to change a few times. And I want to share it more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't noticed, Jennifer has been missing from the story since roughly 3.15 a.m. Mm -hmm. The last we knew of her, she had a heated exchange with her hubby, kneed him in the balls, stormed out of the club, and then several witnesses saw that inappropriate manager, Lloyd Botha, follow her out. So at 3.15 a.m., an employee was waiting for the elevator outside the club, and he says that Jennifer exited the club alone and got on the elevator with him, and it was just the two of them who rode it. He said it was clear she was very intoxicated. He asked if she needed help, and it's not clear if she even responded, but they're going down, to, and so she stops at the ninth floor, and she gets off. He says that after she stepped out, she made a right. And he paused for a minute and he poked his head out and he watched her walk for a few paces because he's like, do I Worried need to go her. help her or is she seem capable? And so he waited a second and watched her and he said it seemed like she knew where she was going. So he decided to let her go. So he gets back in the uh, elevator and he goes on his way. What he doesn't know is that she exited to the right, but her room was to the left. We find out later that apparently Lloyd's girlfriend was on the ship and that she woke up at 325 a.m. when he entered their room. And they both went to sleep and neither left the room until the following morning. So if that's true, then he either wasn't following Jennifer out or he was, but she was already gone by the time he got out of the club. So he so went home he went to his to, girlfriend. Yeah. Like <laughs> Great. That, that, that might've been the case because if that timing is the truth, then it makes perfect sense. And then apparently at approximately 4.40 AM, multiple crew members find Jennifer passed out on the floor in front of a door that leads to an employee only area. Oh no. It's in a hallway on the ninth floor, but it's on the opposite side of the ship from where her room is. Okay. They claim she is so intoxicated that she can't stand or walk, so they go and find a wheelchair for her, and they return her to her room. Her room's keypad shows her key being used to open the cabin door at 4.48 a.m., and then again at 4.57 a.m. He would have been home. Oh, my God. He was put in his... He was... If the boys are telling the truth, he was in his room at 4.01 but then there was a loud thud at 425. Oh my God. So the fact that her keypad, and, and if you compare to what Greg said, that around 445, fif roughly 15 minutes after hearing that thud, there were two employees knocking at that door. If there is no foul play involved, then it makes sense that they had just found her five minutes earlier. Yeah. They have her key. They're trying to figure out which room she's in. 
and they are obviously knocking on the door there okay. you can't just walk into someone's room so yeah. they're either trying to confirm it's her room or wake the occupant of the room to get help or just alert them that they're about to enter i can see how they'd find her she says what room she's in they take her key they two of them go check somebody else is getting her wheelchair the room's empty okay. they go back and get her and they let her back in and they put her in mm -hmm. i could see how that is possible uh, the employees claim that they got her into her room. It appeared she was alone, and then they left, closing the door behind them. At 7 a.m., a 16-year-old a girl named Rachel stepped out onto her balcony to take photos of the water with her new digital camera. <laughs> Us on vacation. I know. And she looks down and sees a massive red stain on the metal canopy below her balcony. She said her immediate thought, before she even realized it was blood, was someone must have died there. So she took a photo of the stain. Us again. <laughs> yeah. And then several other passengers who came out onto their balconies also saw the stain and took photos of it. Wow. So Cleet in his room said he woke up and went out onto the balcony around 7 a.m. He said he was quite curious to see if the occupants in the neighboring um, unit actually threw their furniture overboard. So he peeked around the partition and looked into George and Jennifer's patio. He said all the patio furniture was there. Um, no one was on the patio, and he noted that the sliding glass door was open. Uh, the ship was docking in Turkey at that, like, literal moment. So he and his wife, as well as Greg and, and Pat in the other room, uh, went on about their day. They explored Turkey, not mm -hmm. knowing that something bad had actually happened. I don't believe either unit saw the bloodstain. Enough guests reported seeing the bloodstain that sometime in the 8 a.m. hour, employees started going door-to-door -door of all of the people um, on the floors directly above the stain. And the only guests that weren't accounted for were George and Jennifer. They did not answer their door and they didn't respond to the ship paging them over the speakers. So Josh said that when he heard the pages, he had turned to his dad and he was like, George had so much to drink last night. I don't think he's even going to hear that. Do you think we should go tell someone that? The crew um, continued looking and couldn't find Jen for over an hour. Wow. And when they did find her, she was sitting in the spa. So they asked if she knew where George was, and she said no. She told them that when she woke up in her room that morning, George wasn't there, but they'd had a lot to drink the night before, and things were fuzzy for her, so she assumed that he was probably sleeping it off in a friend's room or something, <laughs> and she had remembered that she'd booked that them a couple's massage, so she just headed straight to the spa. Yeah. So the crew tells her they can't locate George. They've been looking for a couple of hours, and there is a blood stain on the metal canopy a few stories below their balcony. And they believe he may have fallen overboard sometime <gasps> last night, potentially in Greek waters. Meanwhile, they're telling her this as they're docked in Turkey. They tell her they have a theory that he may have been sitting on the railing in their patio, smoking a cigar and lost his balance and fell off the boat, which is a really weird and specific theory to have, especially within just a couple of hours of supposedly. Like, why was he smoking a cigar? Was there evidence of that? Was it on the balcony? You know, it's right. Like that's not clear. Jennifer said she couldn't comprehend what they were saying and she couldn't remember anything after 11 p.m. last night once they got to the casino. She said listening to what they were telling her, it felt like she was dreaming, but also like she was simultaneously having a heart attack. She said that she and George told each other all the time, you're the center of my universe and the reality of him being gone was unbearable. And then she had flashes of their wedding, flashes of her parents and his parents, and she just kept thinking this can't be happening. The crew moves Jennifer to a room very far down on the ship and they tell her to take a shower and they provide her with Royal Caribbean clothes from the gift shop and they apologize for not being able to let her go back into her cabin yet. So she showers, puts mm. these clothes on, and then she's escorted off the ship and taken to a Turkish police station. 
In hindsight, now that Greg, Pat, and Clayton know that George likely went overboard, they say that while they didn't even consider that loud thud being a body at the time, it makes sense. It very well could have been a grown man falling overboard and landing on a metal canopy. Yeah. They said it makes perfect sense. Someone informs George's family back in Connecticut that he's gone missing, and they ask to have you search the entire boat. And the staff said yes. And his family asked, are you going to search it again? And the staff said, no, we already did it once. We're not doing it again. So his family was just like, but you said he was missing. So even though by this time the staff were well aware of the blood stain, and they'd already told Jennifer that theory about the cigar, mm -hmm. whoever spoke to George's family didn't mention anything about the blood or that theory. So initially his family is clinging to the hope that this is a misunderstanding. Maybe he had too much to drink and he's sleeping it off somewhere and they just overlooked him. So yeah. like... If, if you think he's missing, why, don't, why are you not continually searching, searching. the cabin or uh, the ship? Meanwhile, Turkish authorities have now boarded the ship and started investigating the room, the canopy, and interviewing other passengers. What the Turkish authorities don't realize is that after guests had, been, had seen the blood stain on the awning at 7 a.m., 30 minutes later, more passengers reported seeing Royal Caribbean staff members scrubbing, rinsing, and painting over the blood stain. What? The authorities were not aware that the crews had conducted their own mini investigation and documentation of the Smith's cabin. They didn't know they'd taken their own photos and went through the cabin's belongings. And they did not know that the staff had total control over the scene, the entire ship and its passengers for four full hours before Turkish authorities were even alerted. Uh-oh. So Josh, Greg and Zach and Rusty, the boys who had helped George to his room, were all interviewed as a group in the lobby of the ship by Turkish authorities. And Josh's dad just had this very nervous feeling about it. The fact that someone his son had been with the night before was now missing. There's blood. They're in a foreign country. They're on international waters. There's obviously a very big language barrier. He just thought, okay, I need to do something so that nobody's words can get twisted later. So he pulled out his video camera and secretly recorded bits and pieces of the group interview. Um, and a lot of it is online, so you can find it and watch it if you want. All the boys have the same story um, as each other. And later, they all give written statements reiterating it. The boys are questioned again on land at a Turkish police station, this time separately from one another. But Josh's dad does the same thing from before. He secretly records it. That's also a little bit online. Mm -hmm. And it's a really chaotic scene. The translator they brought in brought her baby, who is crying the entire time. They're trying to get Josh to sign a statement, but it's written in Turkish. So the translator is trying to read it to him, and he's like, no, 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 no. You guys are missing a huge part of this story. You're also way too focused on Jennifer. She wasn't even there, like, when we took him to his room. But you guys need to talk to Lloyd, because this guy was all over her last night, and we didn't know where she was. They had a bad feeling about him. Right. Lloyd Botha was questioned, but I guess he was cleared of any wrongdoing, and he just went back to work. When Josh and his family and the other boys and their families returned to the ship, attorneys for Royal Caribbean, as well as security guards, get the boys and all of their families into a room. And again, Josh's dad records it secretly. And that's also online. Smart man. In, in the video, you hear the boys and their family members all demand to leave the room, but the security guards won't let them. They're like trying to intimidate them. And the attorney for the cruise line is literally yelling at everyone that she doesn't have a choice but to hold them because she's following orders from the FBI. But later the I FBI- I don't believe this. Yeah, later the FBI clarifies they 
never instructed anyone to do that, nor would they ever give that type of power to a civilian. Like that, that is never true. Don't mm-hmm. ever believe a someone says that to you. Unless it's, unless it's an FBI Just agent. hit them in the face Just and run. Just hit them and run. <laughs> After spending the day being questioned, Jennifer was escorted back to the ship only to find staff waiting for her on the dock with bags and bags and bags of hers and Georgia's belongings. They had gone through the room and haphazardly packed all of their things in suitcases. And what didn't fit, they just shoved into a ton of plastic Royal Caribbean gift shop bags. And I don't know what she was expecting, but she said she was so shocked to see that. And she felt like the ship was just desperate to get rid of her and George. It's also very violating going through someone's belongings like that. Standing there looking at their stuff, she saw George's sneakers sticking out of one of the plastic bags. And suddenly this just like felt so real knowing he wasn't ever going to wear those sneakers again. And standing there with all of his stuff and just basically getting dumped by the, the ship. Yeah. She was looking at all of it and she was like, I have all of George's clothes, but I don't have George. And like this, that was just like such a horrible feeling. Yeah. And then when she learned that the ship didn't even intend to stay docked, like they were literally going to leave that night, she flew back to Connecticut from Turkey. The metal awning was fully scrubbed and painted over that evening. And the ship set sail for their next stop like none of this ever happened. Josh and the other boys and their families are all treated with aggression and hostility and held in their rooms for two full days. And then when the ship docked in Italy, the ship accused the boys of gang raping a fellow passenger earlier on the trip and that that was grounds to kick them and their families off and report them to Italian authorities to deal with. And just like Jennifer, once they were kicked off, the ship went on its merry way like it's washing its hands of all of this. Yeah. So Jennifer has maintained that her memory of that evening came to a halt sometime around 11 p.m. after they went to the casino. She claims to have blacked out from 11 p.m. until roughly 9 a.m. the next morning. I don't know her and I don't trust her. You don't know and trust who? Jennifer. Jennifer. I I don't trust it. Really? Okay. The boys all maintain the same story. They partied together, helped George get to bed, never saw Jennifer again. And that's all they know. And their stories are very much corroborated by what those two neighboring couples in the other cabin said, who I definitely believe. Yeah. After everyone returns to the States, the FBI takes over the investigation. And everyone, uh, Jennifer, all four boys who'd been with George that night and George's family hire attorneys. It was evident right away that the ship intended to pin as much on the boys as possible. So they became really guarded with authorities after that. The FBI informed Jennifer that this case had such an enormous amount of evidence, they predicted it would be solved within a matter of months, not years. But it's been just over 16 years and nothing has happened. So the Smith family was initially supportive and close to Jennifer. But then they find out that only four or five months after losing George, Jennifer is now in a full-blown relationship with a guy named Jeff Agney that she grew up with. So that was red flag number one. Yeah. Then as they all started exploring lawsuits against the cruise line, George's family found out that Jennifer requested in her lawsuit that George's family not be entitled to any settlement money. She was now legally the executor of his estate, and it was his estate that was, you know, suing the cruise line. Yeah. And she wanted any settlement money just for herself. So that was red flag number two. I hate that. Red flag number three happened when Jennifer suddenly changed her tune about all of this. She went from wanting the cruise line to be held accountable and admit that they were negligent to suddenly out of the blue 
settling with Royal Caribbean for $1.1 million. And she started publicly stating that she believed George died by accident. And if anything, it was George's fault for being too intoxicated. Red flag number four. Uh, I was say, she gets a couple red flags for that one. I don't like that. Yeah. So red flag number four, George's family was shown a copy of a letter that Jennifer's lawyer sent to Royal Caribbean's lawyer on February 4th, 2006. So exactly seven months after George went missing. The letter is short and it simply says, quote, does Royal Caribbean know or have a copy of a videotape showing men other than George Smith having sex with our client? Yes or no. Their client being Jennifer. Yes. So George's family is like, what? Like Jen's attorney is only going to send a letter like that because Jennifer would have told him that the video existed. Yep. So George's family is like, okay, so maybe that's so the she reason was, she suddenly changed her tune and settled with the cruise line. Because they have footage. She believes they might. Jen gave an interview in December of 2005, so only five months after losing George. And she's saying how unbe unbelievable this all is. And she couldn't believe she could go through that and be viewed as a suspect. And the interviewer is like, well, when something like this happens, they always look at the spouse first. And Jennifer smirks and she's like, yeah, yeah, that's something they don't tell you before you get married. And I was uh, like, what breed, what breed of dumbass are you? Fact, <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> even people who aren't into true crime know that. Like everybody knows that. So she just like smirked throughout the entire interview and it was just weird. And she she sort of like looked like she was flirting the whole time. She was smirking like and giggling and batting her eyes a lot and that kind of thing. I'm just not about it. So eventually Jen and her family started sending nasty emails to George's family. Like her dad sent some that said stuff like, just admit he was probably wasted and fell overboard. And things about how George is clearly wasted in all of the photos that the family has provided to the media. Like tons of disgusting stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So Jen and her family are all they tacky. All suck. Yeah. And in 2009, Jennifer marries this guy, Jeff Agney, and they go on to have two daughters. Years later, Jennifer and Jeff put their house up for sale. And after looking at the photos of it online, George's sister, Bree, wrote this scathing post on Facebook about how inappropriate and tasteless it was to find that Jen's whole house is nautical themed and that several of the bedrooms had those round life preservers hung on the walls as decoration. And I I do want to say, I understand that obviously Jennifer is connected to George in an entirely different capacity than his family. So of course she is going to eventually move on with her life. I'm not faulting her for that. And if she needs to put all of this behind her, then okay, like fine. Obviously, his family can can never and will never feel that way because their whole family unit has been irrevocably shattered. But there's just a lot about the way that Jennifer Handled has it. conducted herself. Like, I don't feel good about the way she conducted herself in any of the interviews I saw. The, her treatment of his family after the disappearance is just lacking so much compassion. It's just, it's, then wanting to keep all the money for herself is just greedy. It's just all gross. I mean- and the nautical theme, like I know, unfortunately, a lot of people like nautical themed things. <laughs> unfortunately, I don't know us, why, but it's kind of like your fiance dies on a on a safari, and then your master bedroom is safari themed. Right. It just feels weird. It's so weird and so gross. <laughs> so, anyways, the Smith family knows that the Royal Caribbean's file on this case has like over six thousand pages. All of which I think were provided to Turkish authorities and American uh, to the FBI. Um, so the family repeatedly request copies of all of the papers and the cruise line, like never would give them up. So they kind of felt that by 2011, 
they didn't have a choice but to settle with Royal Caribbean. They had never intended to do that, but after seven years with like literally no movement in this case, they agreed to settle as long as Royal Caribbean um, handed over all 6,000 papers on the, uh, or case file, I guess that's what it's called. Yeah. Which they did. Documents. Documents, yeah, which they did. So after getting their hands on this, they made quite a few unsettling discoveries that seemed to prove that likely the cruise line tampered with evidence and or many of the people involved have been lying from the beginning. I think it's all of the above. Yeah. So for example, the cruise line took a photo of the blood stain on the overhang that shows what there so there's the photo that I'm going to like put on Instagram. Yeah. It's the photo that the girl Rachel, the tourist, took on her, her digital camera. camera. Um but then there's another image that Royal Caribbean's photographer took when they were doing their like little investigation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it shows what appears to be a handprint as if like on the edge as if he tried to grab on as he was falling. Oh yeah. There was also a photo of two small blood stains on the white bedding in his room. And George's family had never been told about blood being found inside the cabin. And I, I think I'm going to include that photo too because it's literally two. I can't even. They're so small. Like it. it Handprints? No, there's two little marks of blood on the bedding. Okay. And it made me think of like when you nick yourself shaving and you don't realize and then you get in bed and it's just it's a little teeny tiny dot yeah like that's you know and then the blood stain on the awning is so huge that I like I look at the two and just like the discrepancy makes me think that the blood stains on the bed just aren't related separate occasion yeah they also find that between 4 30 a.m and 5 a.m to 35 minutes after George likely went overboard a small fire broke out in the ship's incinerator room so who was in there burning something before 5 a.m. just after just, this passenger? Just to distract, possibly? Uh, no. Uh, it was just reported in the ship's, like, logs. Oh, okay. So someone's in there burning something. Okay. Coincidentally, within the 30 minutes oh, of this passenger someone. likely disappearing yes. overboard. Burning evidence. The ship also has cameras all over the place one of which directly points to the area that George would have fallen off of, yet the ship didn't include any footage in their files except for the two quick shots of George and Jennifer walking through the casino, like, hours before. Yeah. The logs that detailed um, all the key entries to the Smith's cabin turned out to be all messed up. Like, they would, they'd have, like, a log, and then they would, like, cross it out and fill a different name into it. But basically it showed that... Multiple employees and housekeepers' keys were used to open the Smith's door prior to Jennifer being located in the spot. Interesting. You could argue they were opening the door because they were already looking for the couple and nobody was there. I, but I don't believe that. I think no. they're just someone was cleaning the cabin. 100%. Apparently, the ship keeps detailed handwritten logs of what time room service is ordered and which cabin the order came from. And even though all four boys claim to have had a massive feast of room service and they have even a time-stamped photo at 4.30 a.m. to prove it, Royal Caribbean claims that the employees in the kitchen that night have no memory of receiving this order, no memory of preparing it or delivering it. And even though phone records showed that their room, 3008, 
made multiple calls to the kitchen just after 4 a.m. The staff that night claims they received no such calls. So I think they're trying to erase the boy's alibi. Or if the boys are guilty of something and they were trying to create an alibi, they made these calls but then didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that they learned was this odd bit about Jennifer at the spa. She claimed to not recall how she made it to her room the night before, just that she woke up in her bed alone, George nowhere to be found, and she suddenly remembers that she had booked them a 10.30 a.m. couple's massage. So she gets up, puts on sandals, and heads straight to the spa. She didn't shower or freshen up, and she didn't change her clothes. So she's literally wearing her like nice dining clothes from the night before. Because when you go, when you go on a, um, when you eat on a ship, you have to dress dress up. Yeah. So the fact that just made no sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the spa attendant gave a statement that said Jennifer arrived at the spa for her couple's massage alone, which was odd, but not totally unheard of. Mm -hmm. But she also inexplicably arrived an hour early for it. And then even when they realized it, she was just like, that's okay. I'll just wait. How is she feeling well enough? Like, I can't even have three cocktails. I know. I totally, I, I don't know. I have no idea. So they do fit her in. Uh, and the masseuse says that during the massage, she noted that there was a huge brown smudge on Jennifer's big toe, like a sort of rusty brown color. So she made sure to avoid it. Old blood. Yeah. There were uh, housekeepers interviewed who claimed to have heard a woman scream in the middle of the night and other housekeepers that claimed that they were instructed to enter the room 9062 in the early morning hours to clean and noted that there was, quote, blood everywhere on the walls, ceiling, everywhere. But give it, But given that the cruise line included a photo of two small blood stains on the bed, that obviously contradicts what the housekeepers claimed unless the room covered in blood was cleaned up and then the photographer took the picture of the stains on the bed. And Jennifer said that when she woke up, she didn't notice anything odd about the room. She didn't see any blood in the room. She had also no explanation for why she didn't freshen up or change her clothes and went to the spa early. She just said that she did. Like she basically is saying that she just woke up, literally rolled out of bed, put on some sandals and just walked straight to the spa. That's not hungover behavior. It doesn't make any sense. No. Especially because the stain was seen at 7 a.m., the staff started to clean it by 7.30 a.m., but within the 8 to 8.15 a.m. window, mm-hmm. they started calling out for Jennifer and George Smith because they had been knocking on all the doors, and those were the only two guests not accounted for. But she got to the spa at, like, 9.30. So she should have been in her room. She should have been, and if the key logs that they, I think that they messed up trying to tamper with... The housekeepers and employees that said that they went in and the key log shows she should have been there. Yeah. Yeah. So it it just doesn't make any sense. And then one guest, and I don't know what what I think of this, um, but I'm including it anyways because it's in the files. One guest claimed to have been on his own balcony around 4.30 a.m. recording a video of the stars and then saw a blonde woman standing with two Royal Caribbean employees while they threw something heavy over the side of the boat and that the blonde woman screamed out. Oh. And the mother of the young girl, Rachel, who took the photo of the stain, yeah. says that she remembers hearing a woman scream in the middle of the night. Yeah. But I 
I just don't know about that part because it is weird that multiple people said that, mm-hmm. but it's weirder that the two neighboring cabins that were uh, alert and awake and listening did not hear a woman. No, I think that's weird too. So that's what's confusing about it is I can see how word gets out that someone's gone missing, there's blood, blah, blah, blah. I, I want I, and their then, stories and then to someone, get involved. Yeah, but, but Royal Caribbean tried really hard to squash all those statements and those, those uh, witness accounts. Yeah. So it just makes me wonder. It's such a specific thing for multiple people to claim that they heard a woman scream in the middle of the night. Yes. And maybe it's totally unrelated because none of them clarified what time because I don't think that they screaming. knew. Yeah, they'd be screaming for all sorts yeah, of reasons. Seriously, you yeah, know, it's, it's possible. <laughs> uh, multiple guests also claimed to hear from staff gossiping that cabin 9062 was covered in blood. Okay. They also learned that when the cruise employees informed Jennifer that George was missing, they gave her that weird theory that he was sitting on the edge of the balcony smoking a cigar and probably fell over. Mm-hmm. But there were no fingerprints on the ashtray in the room, including George's. In fact, it was completely wiped clean, as was a ton of stuff in the room. And like George and Jennifer's prints should have been all over the cabin, plus even some other people's because they know that they entertained other people in there. But there wasn't which just points to the room being thoroughly wiped, wiped down. Yeah. So that's just some of the weird discrepancies that George's family has learned about oh, I have a question. all these years later. I have a question. He was saying that there was a significant amount of money in the safe. Supposedly. Supposedly was the safe empty. By the time the Turkish authorities arrived, the safe was empty. I'm just curious at what point that was emptied. Well, I, that's, I think that's yeah. everyone's question, really. Yeah, I'm I think just saying it for you. Yeah. And that's the thing is um, Jennifer has been said to be very cooperative, but that when the FBI took over, they instructed her because she was, you know, giving interviews and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so they instructed her that you can say everything up to when you get fuzzy, like when your memory gets fuzzy, but everything after that you need to keep to yourself because this is an active investigation. Yeah. And so y- you talking to the public could uh, ruin something. Yeah. So she was very, how do I say it? Like she talkative in a totally normal sense in her interviews up until certain points where she would say, this is what the FBI has told me. So I, I, you know, it's not anything salacious, but I can't technically answer. And my priority is not impacting this investigation because I want to know what happened too. Yeah, fair. I don't know what she has said. Did they really have money like that? Because obviously she would know. And th- there's all these questions of like what was really happening that she either hasn't shared. And I think she's lying. I think she has 100%. a secret. So I think that part of it is like she's not going to like volunteer certain things and then claim that the FBI is like, no, you can't talk about it. I just think it's bizarre. I I have like this tendency to want to place blame on one, like the cruise comp the the line or Jennifer. I feel like them being in cahoots is very lucky on her end. <laughs> if that may or vice versa. Well, I'll I'll kind of get into that in terms of cruises in general. In general. Just wanting to cover up a crime. Yeah. Um, so the Smith family's attorney, after getting all the, the cruises case files. Uh, He interviews Josh and the other boys who had been with George uh, that night. Josh invoked his Fifth Amendment right for every single question. He wouldn't even answer if his name was Josh Askins. He was just like, 
Yeah. Uh, but Greg Rosenberg readily talked about the whole thing. Like he had no problem answering the questions. And when he gave his deposition, he was actually in a jail serving a sentence for drug trafficking. And this is a million years later. It's like almost 10 years later. Okay. And he was like, look, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, but murder is a whole other thing. I've never done that. I didn't do anything to him. I don't know who did, but I think something bad happened and the cruise line is covering it up and I hope that the truth comes out. I, I, I agree with him. I agree with him. And it, he also says, you know, cause then he starts getting questioned about this whole room service thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't remember like who ordered, but I do remember what I ate. And he remembers eating tuna fish sandwiches and they just were so good. Like, because, you know, when you're so drunk. Tuna fish be hitting. Yeah. Different. <laughs> when you're wasted. Especially when there's pickles in 4 it. 4.30 in the I'm morning. I'm just saying in general. <laughs> yeah. So that's what he, in the way that he, because you can, that video is like online and the way that he says it is so, it's just so believable. And he does yeah. not seem like someone who's like capable of. My gut. Big lies. When you just quoted him, I was like, I, yeah, I, I believe it. Yeah. I buy it. Yeah. So he says that he remembers hanging with George was a lot of fun. He seemed really happy. He seemed successful. He just seemed to have a good life. Mm-hmm. He had this beautiful new wife and they seemed really happy and in love and having so much fun. And that for him, it's just wild to think that they had just been with him. And then moments later, he's gone. Yeah. So sadly, in 2015, the FBI officially closed George's case. Ten years had come and gone. Nothing had happened. So I guess because it's closed, the Smith family can now request copies of all of the FBI's case files. And the FBI agrees, but informs them that the case file has over 97,000 pages. And before providing copies, they have to go through each and every paper to redact identifying details to protect people's privacy. Mm -hmm. So they tell his family it's estimated to take uh, just under 900 days to deliver the file. And George's sister said uh, that has long since passed and they haven't received anything from the Bureau. So in this story, like it's so wild and so confusing. It's full of like very concrete details, but then mixed in with very vague, confusing, contradictory details. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's exactly what Royal Caribbean wants. So every time you think that you're like gonna solve it yeah <laughs> then you're like wait what do you have like a theory yes and no like i definitely believe that royal caribbean altered or tampered with or completely staged the room that i'm calling your crime scene because i do believe it was murdered i don't believe it was an 100 percent. but even if you don't believe that the cruise company is guilty of anything given that this crime scene changed hands so many times and at such crucial moments the chances of it not being compromised, whether it was intentional or unintentional, is like slim to none. Yeah. So I'm just curious if I don't feel like the guys did it. I don't feel like the boys that helped him to the room did it. I don't think so. I'm wondering if she was having an affair and they got in a fight and she murdered him. And then she called pretending to be upset that something had happened to him. And then the cruise company helped her. Well, you just hang on to that. I will never forget what I said. <laughs> well, it's recorded. So oh, and if I forget, I'll listen. So in an article written by uh, Belin Lin for BU News Service, it's explained that there are no law enforcement agencies aboard cruise ships. So if a crime occurs, 
You have to report it to the security staff, who is literally just staff, but they're called security, um, who is then supposed to report it to the ship's captain. And it's up to the captain to decide whether or not they do anything further. And given that reporting or crime that took place on the ship then opens up the ship to serious civil lawsuits for not preventing the crime, Mm -hmm. the captains often choose not to report it at all. That's why something like uh, sexual assault like runs rampant on these ships because yeah. there are a lot of ways to get out of reporting that. However, when someone goes missing, it's just a little harder to simply look the other way. The evidence is a lot more noticeable. So when the captain of a ship does report a crime, the ship is required to alert the upcoming ports that a crime scene is entering their country. Okay. So legally, every port's local authorities are required to board the ship go through the crime scene and gather or document evidence. And obviously the more people who go through a crime scene and the more people get involved, the messier it all becomes. So after a ship has gone through multiple ports, there is just no way in hell that evidence from that scene would ever hold up in court. If it, if it even got that far, yeah. which it never does, it's all just way too compromised by that point. And that all happens after the ship staff has already thoroughly gone through and tampered with or completely cleaned it up prior to any local authorities boarding. Mm -hmm. So a maritime law professor from Tulane University named Martin J. Davies said in in that article that because of all those factors, cruise ships become the ideal place to commit a crime and get away with it because the ship will dock in a foreign country soon and all you have to do is get off the ship and disappear and the ship will likely clean up your mess to save its own neck. I keep thinking, I don't know if I've already said that. I said this to you the other day, but if my husband wants to like, we're like 30 years in and he's like, honey, let's rekindle the fire. Let's get the passion going again. Let's go on the Royal Caribbean or let's go on the Disney cruise or something like that. I don't know where you want to go. I'm going to take you there. I would not go. I'd be like, sir. This is a sign that we get divorced. You want to kill me. (laughs) So George's family has a tip line for anyone with information and in october of 2019 they received a tip that said during the honeymoon jennifer had been videotaped having group sex with multiple male employees (sighs) of the ship who then blackmailed her if she didn't pay them they would release the video online so according to this tipster who was a former bartender and had been working on the ship that night This is a regular thing on cruise ships, employees blackmailing desirable targets, people like George and Jen, who are white and well off, and certainly so if they're in the party scene because it makes drugging them that much easier. Oh, so when she wandered, okay. So this tip claimed that on the night in question, the employees got her alone and demanded that she pay. Jennifer agreed to. So these two employees went to her room with her supposedly the employees had drugged George's drink earlier in the evening. So they expected him to be fully passed out when they got in there Mm -hmm. to get the cash, but they were surprised to find George was awake and moving around the cabin. Apparently they told him about the video and the blackmailing. He says something about divorcing her and that he's not going to pay it. And he gets into a physical altercation with the employees and they struggled for like several moments before getting him out onto the patio and pushed him over. Oh my God. The tip line received a similar tip from another person, like someone who reiterated a similar story. They were working on the ship. They knew of employees having sex with a female guest and then blackmailing her about it and that her husband went missing. 
So I personally think that's most likely, that's the most likely of scenarios. Mm -hmm. Like, because if that video didn't exist, that tip came in 2019. And if that video didn't exist and Jennifer is truly innocent in all of this, then why seven months after losing George would her attorney ask Royal Caribbean if they had that video? So like, come on. And we don't know when and if Royal Caribbean responded to her attorney about the video, but four months after that, Jennifer accepted her settlement of over a million dollars and changed her tune and started blaming George for his own death. So the Smiths have maintained they think this was a robbery gone wrong and that Jennifer has something to hide even if she wasn't directly involved in his death. But she has moved on and keeps a very low profile. She doesn't talk about it. It's such I, a flattering story. I'm shocked that she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but the the interesting part about um, struggling for several moments is that both the neighbors on either side said that there seemed to be just really significant furniture moving for eight to 10 minutes is what they both said. That's a long time. And then suddenly it was silent for like two minutes and then this loud thud. And Cleet, the, um, the police officer neighbor, he said that when he heard that he thought he didn't think that someone fell off the balcony. He thought someone was, fell in their balcony like someone like fell like on water or something and like you know really yeah, landed yeah. on the ground that's where his mind went in hindsight we should all assume that if we hear something like that just run outside just and check look. it out just go check yeah. yeah in 2019 the cruise line industry reported generating 55.5 billion dollars in the united states alone so imagine pairing that with international cruises as well yeah obviously with covid you know the last year and a half they probably took a pretty big hit but all the years prior to that the cruise industry makes billions if not trillions every year so this is like the most powerful entity to go up against and anyone outside of the highest levels of government they just don't seem capable of truly making a difference and I don't mean for that to sound like apathetic I just mean it's like basic math like how can any normal person or normal family actually make a difference the most that they can do is continue to advocate for their loved ones and continue telling the story of how they were lost and hope that the rest of the population hears it and then understands the risks. George's family has pushed hard for intense safety measures to become federal law to protect Americans who board cruise ships. And some things like peepholes and cabin doors and deadbolts have been implemented. But ultimately, the entire cruise line needs a major overhaul and they need all sorts of safety measures that just don't exist. But it's important, I think, for everyone to know that you risk everything by taking a cruise. Mm -hmm. And I was like reading about this and someone in a comment said like, well, you risk everything when you get in a car too. And I was like, okay, you can argue that you risk everything when you get in a car, but Ford and Toyota, it's like, it's not a massive conglomerate with an underworld of employees that ride with you every time you got to drive somewhere, then covering up their crimes when you inexplicably vanish from the vehicle. Yes. Like it's a totally you different have normal situation. Stick- I can't even speak. Jurisdiction as well. <laughs> yeah. But I just think everyone needs to understand the risks involved when you board a cruise ship. Or understand the risk that your loved one is taking by doing it. And I was telling Brett about this story yesterday and countless other stories that I came across while I was writing this one. And I honestly, 
I don't know what I would do if one of my loved ones said they wanted to take a cruise. Because, like, I'm certainly not going to join them, but I would, like, raise hell and throw some massive tantrums to, like, try to convince them not to go. Can you imagine? Because your one-year wedding anniversary is coming up. Or your two-year. Two year. Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, last year didn't count. Last year didn't count for anyone. Anyways, um, your two-year is coming up, and Brett has, like, tickets behind his back, and he's like... He's like, oh, yeah, I, I've never yeah, wanted to do that yeah, either. Yeah, screw cruises. <laughs> You're going to single-handedly destroy cruise companies. I hope so. They're going to come after us. Great. We're just a tiny little fish in the sea. Don't, <laughs> don't, please don't. We're harmless. So Georgia's sister, Brie, said Greece was his favorite place, and now he's in the water there. So Brie, along with her, their parents, George and Maureen, have never stopped advocating for George. They have never stopped talking about him, and they have never stopped searching for answers. They say that if they had George, or at least the truth about what happened to him, at least maybe they could try to move on. But they just don't have the ability to do that. They feel that they've been robbed, yet they don't know how they were robbed or who robbed them. And they just have to live with this feeling forever. His mom, Maureen, said, quote, we keep going. We all keep going. We miss him and he deserves better. He didn't deserve to be remembered as a bloodstain on an overhang on a cruise ship. And that's the very sad and unsolved story of George Smith's death. There's so many cases like that. Oh, it's it's like unbelievable. There are so many. I mean, I there's so many to pick from. It's insane. Massive amounts of those. And then a lot that we've never even heard of. Yeah. Can't even get statistics because no, of that. No, because they don't release those those numbers. They have no, the cruise line has no reason to. Just take our word for it, everybody. Yeah. It's dangerous. So I totally think that the whole sex tape thing is likely. I also think that if that isn't it, I don't know why it wouldn't be given the evidence, but if that isn't it and it's something else that the cruise has on her somehow, I just feel like there's something she's not sharing. I think that the, I, I do believe that the boys were not involved, but they very quickly started being targeted and it was really clear that the cruise line wanted to blame this on them. Mm-hmm. So they got really cagey after that became clear. Understandable. Which I totally understand. It's fine. But there is, we just have to acknowledge it. There is the chance that whether, you know, <laughs> It was an accident and he fell over because he's wasted. Mm-hmm. He really was so intoxicated and that maybe he was out there and he he just accidentally fell over. And it's just a crazy fluke that it happened right after the boys left, just before Jennifer's returned. And then mm-hmm. all this weird stuff happens the next morning. And then if it was an accident, I still believe the cruise line covered everything up. 100%. Like either way, whatever it was that happened, the cruise line has all the reason in the world to cover it up because they're shitty agreed good i'm glad we agree yep same page (laughs) i'm glad we're on the same page (laughs) that's wonderful well that was a great story and happy season finale happy friggin season finale it's been a wild ride (laughs) it's been so wild it's been such a wild ride so we have a guest episode coming up and we have a little bonus episode Mm -hmm. and then we'll get it back into our normal season yeah I mean, our normal regular show. programming, regularly scheduled programming. Yes, that's that's the how saying. you say it. Yeah, that's the saying that yep. people say. <laughs> yep. And now we've said it. Yep. Now it's confirmed. Ours. <laughs> it is mine now. Well, love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.